what if someone decides not to do business with me because they find out that I'm black? Hi, everyone. Welcome to Black And, a candid conversation about racism, white people, and ways to move forward. I'm April. And I'm Jonathan. And we're brother and sister looking to discuss how race informs important issues, current events, and what white people looking to make a difference can do. This episode, we're really excited to speak to Lauren Fine and Joanna Adjoyan of the Youth Sentencing and Reentry Project based in Philadelphia. But before we get to all of that, April, what's on your mind? Well, as everyone in the universe should know by now, um, <laughs> I recently adopted a child. She's a eight-week-old German Shepherd puppy, and she's the love of my life. So that's it. That's what's on my mind. That's it. That's <laughs> the only thing that's been on my mind for the last, what, year and a half? You know I was going to say, it's so, all you can talk about. Great. Episode over. Yeah, right. Okay. Um, Thanks for coming out. But... There's more to the story. Um, so, as you know, John, we went to pick up Mac. Um, Wait, do you need to tell everyone your dog's full name? Malcolm James. Her name is Malcolm James because those are both awesome names. And, yeah. Awesome people. Awesome people. There's really no, I mean, there's not much more to it. Like, why wouldn't I name her that? Right. All other but she goes, names suck. But she goes by Mac. Yeah. Okay. Mac. So... On Christmas Eve, John and I went to go pick her up. Um, It was a four-hour drive from Philadelphia to the middle of Pennsylvania, Troy, Pennsylvania. Um, And so, you know, we've been planning this for a long time. I was really excited. And then that morning of at 5 a.m., we were heading out on the road. I thought to myself... What if they don't give her to us once they see us? They meaning the breeders. And the thought just sort of crossed my mind. Um, and then we kept driving. Um, so we're driving there. We get to Troy, Pennsylvania, and you look left and right, and there are just Trump 2020, Make America Great Again signs everywhere. Mm. It's... <laughs> Something. Yeah. yeah. It was a lot. And so the thought crossed my mind again. What if we show up to this house after driving for four hours? Um, me having, you know, communicated with the breeder over and over again for the last six months. Via email. Via email. Um, what if when the breeder, a white woman and man, a couple, what if when they see us, they say, no, never mind. We don't. We're, we're, we don't sell. We don't do business to with people like you. Yeah. People that look like you. Right. And they were, mind you, like in their seventies, probably. I, I would say, yeah. Yeah. Um, Seven-year-old white man, woman. Um, and so as we got closer and closer to the house, I, I wasn't panicking, but I really thought, like, John, we need to have a a plan B. Yeah. The uh, the chances of them. Doing what you just described are not zero. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> like, They're not high. Yeah. <laughs> They're not high. I wasn't expecting them to turn us away, but they could have. And what would we do in that situation? And so we talked about it. And there really is no definitive 
you never know what you're going to do when something like that happens to you. But the fact that we had to discuss it seriously was... Like, what actually would we do? What actually would we do? Would we so, call the police? So is this notion of a, having a contingency plan, is that, that's what's on your mind? Right, right. That day itself, not necessarily because this has happened, you know, before, the thought that what if someone decides not to do business with me or not to partner with me or not to sell me a product because they find out that I'm black? Hmm. What do you do? Yeah. This is the most recent time um, getting Mac. We were like, oh, right, like... We're driving to, like, Pennsylvania, which is the, <laughs> what people call the, like, very rural area between Pennsylvania and, and – or between, sorry, Philadelphia and Pittsburgh. There's just basically farm country and little towns, and it's just very conservative. It's why Pennsylvania is a swing state. <laughs> um, I mean, even when we stopped to get gas, yeah, the gentleman – pumping gas at the thing next to us, just God, so open menacing. mouth staring. Yeah. Didn't blink. Didn't close his mouth. Just gawking yeah. when we got out of the car. So this is something I think that is important for white people to know that black and brown people do a lot. We think about these contingencies a lot. Um, in our everyday lives, there are, we are, we've mentioned before how in order to lead lives that are uh, varied and um, sort of and, and to interact with sort of <laughs> business and commerce in a meaningful way in society. Black people have to interact with white people for the most part um, at some point. Um, so the notion that you we will encounter people that are racist, overtly racist, and, and, in that they are mean to black people because of their racism, um, it is the ch- those chances are not zero. I mean, I have example after example I could give you of the same. Um, but yeah, in this instance, we didn't come up with a contingency plan because it was we were so late to it, right? Like, right. we didn't, I we mean, were like, oh shit, this is real. This could very much, we could open the door and they could be like, uh, excuse me, yeah, no, no it way. It didn't hit me that crap. This is an op- This is an actual thing that could happen until we started seeing... Trump-Pence 2020 signs. Yeah, and just the the way people interacted with us on the way there. Oh, yeah. The staring and the, yeah. Just no one was mean, no one was rude, no one said anything to us. It's just vibes. The vibes that you get, and they're not good. And to me, it's like no one said anything to us and no one did anything to us despite their obvious racism, right? Like, these people were not friendly like the dude at the gas station was not staring at us in a it wasn't a nice way it right, was like no. he was like it was like what are you doing right here? he was really um, confused you've never seen someone yeah they yeah, never seen anyone like almost like, startled like what the heck right how we, could you guys are we be being here right now yeah <laughs> right <laughs> um and yeah. i mean fortunately it turned out that these were the nicest two people we could have met she the one the lady gave us a christmas hug that's right on the way out left. yeah that was so and sweet you know, she gave me my angel and it was great. But the fact that we couldn't enter into that mm-hmm. situation, knowing a hundred percent that it was going to turn out that way or assuming that it was going to turn out that way is just a reality of being black in America. I think it's important to point out that like, of course there are always things you could worry about. Did you forget your money? 
are the puppies healthy enough? Right, but those are things that I would worry to, about too. Right, exactly. They're, but and none of them have to do with your race, right? Right, like right. So those are, are other, human things. They're right. There are things that anyone could worry about. Worry we have about. that added stressor of worrying about the very real possibility that she might, deep in the heart of Trump country, deep in the heart of conservative Pennsylvania, say, "Oh no, 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 no! We do not sell these dogs to." They would say city people yeah, or people folks like who are you people from or, your community. Yeah. Or they would come up with some euphemism, I'm sure. Yeah, I mean, I even made sure to pull my hair back and put it right. in a bun. Okay, right. Yeah, we so totally that did that. I didn't, wasn't wearing a full-on afro. Um, and, I mean, there's only so much I can do to my hair to not right. make it look as awesome as it always is. Right. But I, I made a, I, you know, specifically did certain things to make myself... Uh, look in look a way that I thought would be most well received by least, pot- yeah least offensive right to by potential like sincere Trump supporters. Now, what that what what does that even mean? I don't even know. But and we if, keep yeah. If someone doesn't like black people, I would assume that they would particularly not like a black person with an afro because right. it's a stereotype. When you picture a black person, you probably think of someone with, you know. Aesthetic base. Aesthetic base. Immaterial. I like immaterial. That works. Um, so, yeah, I pulled my hair back. I tried to make it as small as can be. Um, I, you know, was careful uh, with what I wore. I didn't want to wear anything that would make me stand out. Um yeah, it's Best just language, no slang, right, no like right, right, and it's not being, and it's not saying I was on my best behavior because I'm always nice right. in public. It's not that I was, you know, we we were being, you know, careful to be nice and polite. It was being careful not to use black English and being careful not to speak too loudly, and you know. I'm assuming for you, Jonathan, because you already tower over people because you're so tall, you know, being careful not to come off as um, aggressive. I don't know. Yeah. Aggressive or whatever. And and I can already hear what people would say in response to this. Well, why would you want to do business with someone who first I'll back up? How can you assume that Trump supporters are racist? One, two, if they are, how can you assume why would you want to do business with someone who has these tendencies the way that you're guarding against? Um, and to answer those questions, it's like, okay, one, I Trump's assume... Trump's racist. Right, so Trump's blatantly and obviously racist, so people who support him, that's either okay with them, or they support it wholeheartedly. So either way, that is a problem for me. Second, you had done all of this work, preparation, to welcome this dog into your house. You have, like, planned like no one I've ever seen planned before for a new addition to a family. Um, My baby. So this was the day. Like, this was the day. And it just dawned on you that day that this could be an issue. So, yeah, of course you wouldn't choose, if you if everything was equal to you, everything was the same, you wouldn't choose purposefully to do business with someone that had these beliefs. But if you've made all these arrangements, the time in your life is right, you've narrowed it down to this one day, this is happening, and you realize this, there's not really much you can do except cancel your relationship with them, lose the deposit that you already put in, right. lose the, you know, we can't, if we spent all our time guarding against not doing business with racist people completely, 
or people who might be racist because of their political affiliations, that's all we'd ever do is guard right. against things. We wouldn't well, be able and, to... I mean, there are only a certain number of breeders in the world, in the United States. Right. Um, and for me, it would be, you know, within reason as far as how far I'm willing to travel. So right. please believe if, like, a black-owned um, German Shepherd breeder were in the same location or even, you know, a couple hours farther away and they were a reputable reputable breeder, I would have chosen them. Right. But that's not an option. So, I mean, one, we're limited in our options, especially with something like this. And two, you never know. So, I mean, even if this were, you know, uh, a breeder in the center city of Philadelphia. Right. And they were, you know, I don't know, Bernie or Bust folks. Right. They could still be racist. Of course, right, right. So it's not like a, yeah, you're, there's no guarantee anyway. There are just, yeah, some signs that might lead you to believe someone would be racist. Right, right. <laughs> and these people had showed all those signs. Right. And it's I just do think it's important to emphasize that, like, this is a common thing for black people. Like having contingency plans for things. There are some that we have in place for occurrences that we experience all the time. Like, for example, I was uh, pulled over by a police officer in Los Angeles um, the other week, and as I'm getting pulled over, I text my family really quickly, hey, I'm being pulled over by police. If you don't hear from me in 30 minutes, text this person. It's a friend of mine who's a lawyer. Um that's a contingency plan that we have, in, black men have in place, because if I'm getting pulled over, there's a risk that something really bad is going to happen. In fact, I was sort of shaken by this and sort of this was a, I wasn't pulled over for any particular reason. He was just sort of harassing me per usual. Um, but it was, hey, family, we have this set of this series of like, you know, uh, action items in place that should snap into effect if you don't hear from me because that means this thing that has a higher risk of happening to black men, i.e. being hurt by police or unjustly detained by police, is is potentially happening right now. So that's just another, that's another example, more, a little more serious maybe, right? Like, yeah. um, But that kind of stuff happens all the time. It happens all the, you know, April, you've seen, um, you've been shown apartments when you're looking for new apartments to live in in Philadelphia where you're meeting with a realtor or someone who owns a landlord who's going to show you a building you're meeting way in South Philly or what and it's like you're rolling up like um okay like i hope this person doesn't isn't like a violent racist right. isn't like a you know or isn't someone or who decides that oh the house is no longer on the market like today's the day right exactly right. The, the ranges from like oh you're not getting this house to i could hurt you today you know right. like right um we just we have to think of we have to have those types of overt prejudices and potential harms in the backs of our minds all the time and so that's why when we talk about white privilege quote-unquote the privilege quote-unquote is not having to worry about those things you have to worry about them for other reasons again you forgot your deposit you like you know you have when you get pulled over by a cop you have something in your car you might not want them to find out so you're scared like you you know right it's things that everyone has to correct for and be afraid of they're not race they're not race race based yeah. Um, and that's just the sort of big thing. Sorry, I t- sort of took over your what's on your mind per segment. Usual. No, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's fine. And um, it turned out that it was fine. And my now child is 
an angel. <laughs> she is very cute. It's just yeah. You will if you follow. Here we go. Here's a plug. Follow us on Instagram at Black and Podcast. All written out, um, and you will be privy to photographs of this precious puppy. Um, they're gonna be. There's gonna be plenty. I'm sure. She's perfect. Um, yes. Anyway, all right, well, so should we get to the rest of the show, I suppose? let's do it. Um, all right, so when we come back, we will have our interview with the founders of the Youth Sentencing and Reentry Project. So I'm here with, uh, Lauren Fine and, uh, Joanna Visser-Ajoyan, um, of the Youth Sentencing and Reentry Project. Welcome to Black End. Hey, thank you so much. So I'm so happy to have you on uh, on the show. I learned about your organization um, a few years ago, uh, I believe when we were being housed in the same building uh, as, as the law firm that I was working for. Um, and I was so taken with what you guys are doing and and the sort of initiative that you guys took to to start this organization, and so um, I can't wait for you to to tell our listeners about it. So so um, up to you who starts first. But why doesn't one of you sort of um, dive in and and explain what the youth sentencing and reentry project is? Sure, and thank you for those kind words. Uh, we really appreciate it, and we're really just honored to be part of this conversation and to be talking about these issues that we care about uh, so deeply. And at its core, YSRP is an advocacy organization that believes that children do not belong in adult jails and prisons and that people deserve to return home and live full lives with dignity. And what we also are is a racial justice organization. Our values are rooted in the belief that criminal justice and the juvenile justice system stem from the legacy of slavery in this country and operate from the basis of white supremacy. Every single day, we see children, families, communities being dehumanized by a system that is eager to lock them up and punish them indefinitely with excessive fines and fees. These are black and brown children and families living in one of the poorest cities in the country, as you know. And our work is really about community building. Even though we're lawyers, we take a sort of different approach, um, one that really values community building among all sorts of different types of stakeholders. And that's because we believe that there are multiple different systems that are attacking our client partners. And we use that term to refer to the folks that we work with, young people, adults who, when they were young people, were sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Um, And that's because we take a partnership approach. And we can talk more about that later on, maybe. Um, but we work with our client partners, their family members, other lawyers, social workers, policymakers, community organizers, activists, um, folks that we can kind of learn from different perspectives and build power with and among um, so that the folks who are most impacted by mass incarceration are at the forefront of uh, really trying to dismantle the systems that interfere with their ability and with the ability of people in general to live full lives. And, you know, I'll just add on the point of of partnership in the short term in terms of what our day-to-day work is, it's that partnership with young people, with their families to move their cases out of the adult court in Philadelphia County and some of the surrounding counties as well, and back into or into the juvenile justice system or the community. And that's with the recognition that 
the juvenile justice system has a ton of flaws and is problematic in all of the ways, but it's still better suited to meet the needs of kids than the adult criminal justice system is. And we can talk more about this too, but since 2016, we've been partnering with juvenile lifers individuals who were children when they were sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole, children when they were sent to prison and told that they've had the opportunity to be resentenced thanks to the U.S. Supreme Court and advocacy that was building for years. And we've been working with them through the recess in Philadelphia and working in partnership to create pathways for them to return home and live full lives with dignity. And so the work happens in the courtrooms, Um, it happens at the jails and the prisons and the juvenile placements, it happens on the Pennsylvania Turnpike, riding all around the state, Um, and like Lauren said, working in true partnership and coalition with allies uh, to support folks as they're moving through these processes and returning home. And the last place we're hoping that it will happen going forward is in the state house. Uh, We longer term have policy goals that we'd like to see. Um, really it's changing the law so that young people aren't fighting their way out of the adult system into the juvenile justice system or the community. But uh, we can talk more about that later on. We've, we've said a lot of words at you. <laughs> yeah, no. So this is, this is uh, just, it's sort of astounding the, the level of work that you all have put into this. And it is, um, I'm so happy to hear that, that there are people that are paying attention to this because we all, these are, you're just, listing off all of these sort of very, very complex issues that are all related to one another. And it's just, um, it's so striking that, that what you all have already been able to accomplish. But before, you know, before we dive into sort of the substance, I want to know uh, more about the two of you. So I'm sure our listeners are, are interested to know who are these, who are these two wonderful women who are, uh, who are doing this. And so could you each just sort of give a little bit of background on, on, on who you are and how you came, how you came to this organization? Absolutely. And in the spirit of this podcast and the really powerful way that you and April have framed the conversations right up front, we'll just name our identities, how we identify. This is Joanna speaking. I am a biracial Black woman, daughter of a white mother and a Black father, um, living in Philly for about 20 years. And we'll get into a little bit more as well. Um, And this is Lauren. I'm a white woman uh, from Philadelphia, moved back here about 10 years ago, um, which is when Joanna and I first connected. And um, we're both trained as lawyers and we come to the work with that perspective. Um, But we also come, as we sort of mentioned already, with the perspective that there's a lot to learn from lots of other different types of folks. Uh, Most importantly, the young people and the families that we work with. And we're really intentional and explicit uh, as co-founders, as co-directors about naming that we are a biracial leadership team, a white woman and a black woman coming to the work with different perspectives in a lot of ways, different identities. But like Lauren said, a shared conviction that children should not spend even one hour, let alone months or decades in an adult prison or adult jail setting. And that's really how we came to the work. Um, You know, we were both in different places practicing law in Philadelphia, but we saw enough in the different spaces that we were in that we couldn't turn away from. We saw things that were unjust. Um, We saw children being treated as if they were adults, and we pretend that in Philadelphia and many other places as well. We saw the divide, the racial divide in the courtrooms. 
Um, the folks who were sitting in the front of the courtroom and making all the decisions were primarily white folks. And the folks sitting in the back were primarily people of color, black and brown folks. And we saw the way that they weren't being valued, um, that they weren't even being asked to participate in a meaningful way in a process that was directly impacting them and their families. And uh, we saw also that uh, the city that we call home, Philadelphia, has actually sentenced more children to die in prison than any other place in the entire world. We're the only country in the world that sentences kids to spend the rest of their lives in prison. And we learned Jesus. about how this, yeah, exactly. Um, and that was something we couldn't walk away from. We got to know family members who had loved ones serving these sentences, got to hear from them how dehumanizing the process had been, how left out of the process sort of intentionally they had been, um, even though it most affected them and affected them in ways that are hard to overstate. So it was a combination of a lot of different experiences that we had of you know, seeing lawyers show up unprepared only takes one time seeing a lawyer show up drunk when a child's life is on the line to feel like there's some systemic issues here. And we wanted to do something about it. And we started kind of talking and building ideas about how we might approach things differently if we were able to create a different type of way of being lawyers and being advocates, really. Wow. That's really uh, powerful. And those are some sort of striking statistics about uh, about Pennsylvania and the and the system generally, um, I'd ask. I guess you know, could one of you or both of you sort of give us a quick sort of overview of some of the differences between the the sort of juvenile system and the adult system, or 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 differences that you know, and or differences that you believe should be in place that are not. Um, I think a lot of people don't know, um, don't really know what this is like other than what they've seen on sort of law and order. And so um, if you could sort of help folks understand where you are situated um, in this system and, and sort of what the similarities and differences are between the child and adult systems, that would be helpful, I think. Yeah, there's a lot to say about that. Yeah. Um, fundamentally at its core, the juvenile justice system, the youth system, is, it's supposed to be about rehabilitation. It's supposed to be about opportunities for growth, um, for education, it's designed purportedly with children in mind. And, and like I said earlier, there is so much room for improvement. We need a whole other episode just talking about the needed reforms in the juvenile justice system. Um, but at least the fundamental premise acknowledges that kids are kids and ought to be treated as such. And the adult system, by contrast, is from our perspective about punishment and about retribution. And there are kids, if they're charged with homicide as young as 10 years old in Pennsylvania, who start their cases in the adult criminal justice system, and the burden is on them to fight their way out of it and hopefully get their way uh, back to the juvenile justice system. So there's differences across jurisdictions. Things operate differently in different places. And some other places, the burden is not on the child, but on the prosecutor. But what we're dealing with here in Philadelphia is if your case starts in adult court, you have to claw your way out of it. Wow. Okay. So, and there are, there, you're saying that, you know, when, when a minor, someone you said as young as 10 is charged with a crime that the default often is for them to begin in the same system where the 40 and 50 year old 
men usually are being are being charged with with these crimes as well? Here in Pennsylvania, it's mostly 15 to 17 year olds who are subject to that. Um, the 10 year old is if there's a life that's lost in the course I of the see. case, whether whether they were the one directly responsible or sort of they were the lookout down the street. Um, right. Everyone's treated exactly the same. But the majority of the young people that we work with who are charged, as you described, you know, just like a 40 or 50 year old are 15, 16 and 17 year olds. Wow. Wow. I, I just think that that is worth sort of sitting with because I, I don't know that very many, very many people know that. Um, and I just, uh, every time I hear that, it's just sort of striking, um, because I just, you know, any, any of us can think of some of the 15 and 16 year olds we know, um, and their children, their brains are still developing. Um, and so that's just, that is wild to hear in, in the worst possible way. We completely agree with you. And it's pretty startling to see it physically too. Um, you know, we, a lot of our work is going out and meeting folks where they are. And in these cases, that means the jails, the adult jails, where it's, as you said, you know, grown men and women who are who these places were designed for. And we have lots of thoughts on, you know, the the propriety or sort of reasonableness of that for adults, too. But when you're talking about a 15 year old, you know, 120 pound child and you see them in these oversized jumpsuits with handcuffs around their waist um, and their feet it's a pretty disgusting sight and it was those experiences it, it doesn't take too many times of seeing that and feeling what seeing that feels like to think there's something really wrong here and I think we can say pretty firmly from our perspective and the places we've been that we don't think these carceral settings are fit for anyone uh, for any human to experience and then when you add on the layer of childhood and adolescence and trauma it just makes it that much more tragic to witness. I'm sure. You mentioned reform that is needed. So there's, you know, of course, the larger reform that we sort of keep, we keep referring to that this is not okay for anyone, obviously, um, you know, within the criminal justice system. But I wonder if you could, um, you could discuss some of the largest obstacles that are in that are standing in the way of reform specifically as it relates to the, the juvenile system. Um, and, and if you want to just focus on Pennsylvania, that's fine. If you want to just focus on Philadelphia, that's, that's also fine. Whatever you think is, is, um, will be most meaningful for our listeners. Yeah. Well, I think, um, more broadly speaking across all systems in this country, no matter where you are, the biggest obstacle that we see is that systems, uh, the criminal justice system in particular, doesn't see these young people, these black and brown young people primarily, as fully human. And they don't treat them the way that you would treat your sibling or your child. Um, the systems dehumanize. We use terms like juvenile or offender or delinquent. Um, and that's very intentional because then we're not picturing a child or a student or a brother or a sister. And um, that makes it really hard to really want to engage in meaningful reform when you're not even considering the humanity of the people that it would affect. And we see that here in Philadelphia, but it's not specific to Philadelphia, unfortunately. And that 
related to that, the obstacles are created by a system being premised and designed around social control, the control of black and brown bodies, like Lauren said, this idea that children need to be taken away from their homes and communities and then be fixed by other people um, in other communities. And we see that playing out routinely, uh, that children are pulled out of their homes, sent across the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania to rural counties where they have rural correctional officers um, teaching their classes and sort of guiding them through the final years of their adolescence. And those are fundamental barriers that are challenging to dismantle when we think about the reforms that are needed. We're just going to pile on here, but another... Um, <laughs> no, please, please. This is what we're here for. <laughs> We we can list a lot of yeah. a lot of barriers. Unfortunately, we're kind of down, but, um, but also hopeful. We hope that comes across too. Um, no, no, it does. Okay, um, you know one thing that we've seen, and it's changing for sure to some degree. But um, you know the reform efforts are largely divorced from what's happening on the ground. We see in a lot of places. So you know, folks leading policy work aren't necessarily the folks who have direct experience with the justice system and um, even just have proximity to it. And um, we think, you know, Brian Stevenson's one of our heroes. He talks a lot about proximity and it really matters and especially matters in terms of leadership. Um, they're the folks who've been through these systems are often not at the table. And if they are, they're often not treated as equal partners and their voices are not valued in the same way as folks like us with fancy degrees. And so, um, you know, it's something that we're trying to, to address in the small ways that we can here in our small organization. We've hired folks who are directly impacted, who've served unfortunately, decades of time in prison um, who, to lead aspects of our work. But that doesn't happen enough. Um, and there's a lot of room for more authentic, meaningful leadership from folks who actually are the experts about what's wrong with the system and what needs to change about it. Hmm. So the I, I should say, you know, as as you know, this is a you and you've mentioned this is a podcast about race, um, and you've you've mentioned on a couple of times that the sort of system is designed to be a sort of system of control um, as it relates to black and brown bodies. I wonder if um, if one or both of you could um, give some sort of specific examples of how you've seen race play a role in this overall system. So, you know, I imagine. There are white children that are being locked up as well. And I'm always imagining sort of what skeptics listening to this podcast um, would think. So sort of writing off the, the talk of race as the sort of liberal talking points, um, because this affects all children, they will say. Um, and it certainly does um, or has the ability to. Um, but I wonder if you could give some examples of, of how you've seen race play a role in the work that you're doing and that's sort of these issues that you're trying to address. Absolutely. And, and it's, it's intersectional. It's not only race, although we think that that's fundamentally the issue at the core here is racism in this country and the legacy of slavery and white supremacy, but it's poverty, it's class, it's surveillance by the police and the communities of um, where the young people and families we work with live. One example I can share is a young person that we were working with, a young black 
teenager, male, um, came home from juvenile placement, was doing great, was doing everything that he could to try to find a job for the summer to move on with his education, but lives in deep, deep poverty. And as we said at the top, in one of the poorest big cities in the country. Um, And it was taking a long time to connect with that job. He sold a small amount of marijuana from his front porch and the police were over surveilling, over monitoring his community. And they witnessed that interaction. Um, Would that happen and and ended him back up right into another juvenile placement jail cell in the city? And, And I guess I query and back to your question, would that happen for a young white person, similar circumstances in a different community where he or she might be living? Um, if class weren't part of it, would the same circumstances occur? Those are those all of those sorts of questions should be part of the conversation as well. And we would put those back to the skeptics that say this happens across the board for everyone. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I I'm thinking of how casually um, some people use and exchange and sell, especially marijuana, especially in Philadelphia. Um, it, it is a it is a city, and I don't know no shades Philadelphia. Um, I don't find a problem with marijuana at all, which is why I speak about it so openly like that. Um, yeah. It's you know I went to college in Philly, and I I mean it's just it's a, a common part of um, of of this sort of social setting for a lot of folks in the area, and it is um, I can attest as well to the sort of um, the, the particular neighborhoods that are being over-policed and over-surveilled, um, it, 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 it's race and, and socioeconomic class for sure. Um, so I appreciate you guys giving that, that um, example. Um, you mentioned, you know, young juveniles being sentenced to decades of, um, of their life in... in you know, being incarcerated for decades of their life. Um, if you could just talk about that for a little bit. I mean, I'm not asking, I guess, for specific examples, um, if you don't feel comfortable sharing them or if it's not appropriate to share them. But again, I'm thinking of our listeners. I don't know that people realize that children are sentenced to decades of their life um, in prison. Um, and so if you could sort of just talk about that and sort of, you know, what you've seen and sort of what, you now know that that does to, to people in those in those circumstances from such a young age? Yeah, thank you for that question because it isn't something that, there's a reason why people wouldn't think that that happens because it's not particularly irrational. It's something that we, you know, as folks even who are trained in the law, most of us don't know it's happening um, until it affects you or someone you know. It's hard to imagine that we're sending 14, 15, 16-year-olds, literally to the penitentiary uh, with adults for the rest of their lives. They will leave in a box. Um, that that was the only way out for many decades. And here in Pennsylvania, we've kind of already referenced this, but you know there are 2,000 kids in the entire country who were sent to spend the rest of their lives to die in prison uh, in, the, in the United States, 2,000 children, again, being the only country that act actually does this to children. And out of those, 500 were sentenced here in Pennsylvania, where we live and work. Wow. And over 300 in Philadelphia, the city that each of us at some point has called home. And um, what that means is 
you're 14 years old, you might be the lookout on the corner for what you think is a drug deal. Um, not to excuse or say that that is not breaking the law. Um, but there's a lot of circumstances that lead people to make different choices. And, um, you know, oftentimes we're talking about young people who get involved with older, with adults, um, and make bad decisions. And again, you could be that 14 year old kid that says, yeah, I want 50 bucks. I'll stand on this corner and yell when the police come, not knowing what's going to happen. Um, and even the other folks involved might not know what's going to happen. But if anyone's life is lost in the course of that interaction, every single person who was even remotely involved, including the kids standing on the corner, is now committing a homicide. Um, and in Pennsylvania and many other states for a long time, that meant you spend the rest of your life in prison, no questions asked, no analysis of who you are, of what the circumstances were of who you have the potential to be. And it's just a game over, you know, end of story situation. And fortunately, in um, a series of Supreme Court decisions, the United States Supreme Court said, we're not going to do that anymore. Um, it unfortunately didn't say we can't still give kids life without parole sentences. But what they said was we at least have to look at certain things about the situation. So how old was this young person? Was this a 12 year old or a 17 year old? Were they the person who created the plan and put it in place, or were they the kid on the corner acting as a lookout? What was their childhood like? Were they, um, you know, involved in special education classes? Were they, um, did they have a, a trauma history of abuse? Um, what just basically, what is the full picture of the story here to make a better decision? And again, unfortunately, it didn't end life without parole. We're still fighting that fight. Today, a 15-year-old, you know, even younger, Joanna mentioned 10, a 10-year-old technically could still get life without parole in our state of Pennsylvania in certain circumstances. Um, but, but at least there's now an analysis. And what that did was it opened up the opportunity for people to go back into court and to have a hearing. Um, I was going to say a new hearing, but really it's the first hearing because they never right. first time. Um, and to have that kind of analysis of who they were then, uh, who they've been since, and importantly, something that we look at, too, and think is really important is who are they trying to be and who can they be going forward if given the opportunity to be free? So there's a lot more we can say. Um, um, yeah, no, I'm sure. and it, that, no, But that is very powerful, and I appreciate you, you both giving that sort of breakdown. Um, uh, you know, so I have a, a, another sort of broad question, um, and it, if it if it touches on a couple of things that you've already mentioned, that's fine because I think this topic is so important that if you need to say it again, say it again. Um, but what are sort of a few? Whenever we have someone on the podcast that is sort of um, plugged into the criminal justice system. We'd love to get your take on some sort of really salient features of the system um, that that our listeners sort of wouldn't be aware of. I think people have this sort of caricature and sort of cartoonish understanding of the system. Everyone, you get arrested, you get charged, you have a full trial with a jury, they vote, there's a dramatic reading of your guilt or innocence in front of a judge. Um, and then, you know, you go to commercial break. Um, I think that's what people think. 
Um, and so if you could, if either of you could, could give some sort of aspects of the system that, that you're, you know, you're certain that folks based on your, your understanding of what people, what people know about the system, uh, don't, don't know and aren't aware of that makes your job, uh, all the more meaningful. Yeah, I mean, I think to pick up on the point that you just mentioned um, on the dramatic reading or a television series, when that verdict gets handed down and you see the person walked out of the courtroom in handcuffs, that is often for the people that we work with, um, the end of the story in terms of the support that they receive. And we think that people don't really recognize that or realize that. I actually, Lauren mentioned him earlier, but I heard Brian Stevenson say just last night how people fail to recognize that once you've been convicted and you're sent to a prison, you have no right to counsel anymore. Um, you are on your own to pursue challenges to your conviction in a lot of ways, um, to pursue challenges to the conditions of confinement, to the abhorrent um, circumstances that you're being forced to live in for whatever period of time. People are truly and, and quite literally on their own at that point. And they are forced to be on their own and separated from their families and communities because the location of the prisons is, is so far away from where people are coming from for the most part. And so that's a piece of the story that we routinely try to lift up. And, and to your later point, we think it's a piece of our story at YSRP that is really important that we continue to walk alongside people once that verdict gets handed down and other system actors disappear, we stay engaged. Um, we continue visiting, we continue talking about the experiences on the inside, how those things can be challenged. Uh, we continue thinking about what the road back to the community might look like with support that is unfortunately and tragically not provided to everyone. And we want that to be a bigger part of the story generally when we're talking about criminal justice reform, let's talk about what it means to, to need to come home um, with the support that each person deserves. Another piece of the system sort of at the other end of things is that we all are taught, you know, from very early ages, you're innocent until proven guilty in this country. And that's like a very important premise that we all feel proud about in our country and like to think that we're sort of superior in some ways to other countries in the way they do things but right. reality that's only true for some people so if you have resources if you have money um you are innocent until proven guilty although the internet is is challenging that a bit for some folks um but really if you are a person without resources you don't have that same presumption of innocence and you are put in a jail cell um, with all that comes with that, all the conditions that that means, um, lack of access to your family, lack of access to, you know, resources to help in your own defense and to understand what's going on and, and good food and hygiene and all the other things. Um, and people often will act accordingly and they might take a deal, for example, for something that they didn't do. Um, just to get out of that situation, because as long as you're sitting there, you feel pretty guilty. Um, it feels it feels like they've already decided what your case is going to be when you're just stuck in a place that you don't have control over. And so, um, you know, for folks who can't make bail, uh, they're stuck there. And that leads to a lot of outcomes in our system that I think none of us would be proud of and feel good about. 
So I'm going to, I want to drill down on that just for a second to clarify. Um, because again, I just think so many people don't know these, this terminology. So how is it that someone can be in jail? I guess this could maybe, you could maybe explain the difference between jail and prison. Um, how is it that someone could be in jail locked up without access to their family, having not been found guilty of anything yet? It's a great question. Um, you know, once once you've been charged with something, which means that the police have arrested you and there's now um, a case against you that the prosecutors can at least, you know, on paper say that there's something that might have happened here. You, depending on the, the case, um, but in a lot of places around the country, it really doesn't really matter what the case is. Just if there's a case, you're put in a jail cell and until you have your first time in court, um, you're just sitting there. There's no real opportunity, you know, to plead your case or to explain to people what happened or to clear up any misunderstandings, particularly if you're poor. And um, you may not even have a lawyer for weeks, um, depending on where you are. And so it, uh, the system you know, you haven't been found guilty, but it sure feels like it when you're sitting there. And, um, you know, when we're talking about children being charged as adults, it's actually an, an additional layer to that because you might be waiting for months before you even get a chance for a judge to consider whether the adult system is the place that your case should be decided. That has to get decided um, before you can even go forward with having a trial. And, you know, you mentioned law and order and the TV dramas, you know, trials are, first of all, rare um, for a lot of different reasons, but they also don't happen right away. It might be months, it might be years before you even have that chance to have evidence come out and to have, you know, your side of the story heard. And so in the meantime, you might have lost your job, your house, your family, all before anyone even decided that you were guilty of doing something. And that's because we hold people um, and we use money as a way to decide whether they're safe to come out or not. And so a rich person like a Harvey Weinstein, who's charged with really extreme things, will spend one night at most in jail, whereas a poor person who can't afford fancy lawyers and can't afford to pay hundreds of thousands of dollars or even hundreds of dollars or sometimes even ten dollars um, might sit for much, much longer just because of the money aspect of the way that we handle the justice system. Yeah, it is really a sort of, um, it, uh, the word barbaric comes to mind when I think of our justice system, because it just is so far removed from what any other comparable nation, uh, or not even comparable nation, even some of the most violent and extreme countries around the world don't do this to their alleged criminals and and certainly don't do this to their children um you know i would ask listeners you know as we're as the three of us are having this conversation and you're imagining who who imagining the the character that 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 you're discussing or the individual that you're discussing in these situations imagine him or her as a 14 or 15 year old child and not as what we go to often when we think of this sort of image of someone that has been arrested for a crime that is just something that 
I remind myself as you both are talking, and it sort of makes me shudder when I think that these are these are children that you're talking about in these situations that are are hor- horrific enough for adults, um, and and just can't imagine um, what that would be like and what you all have have seen. But again, that sort of goes to how important your work is and how grateful we are um, to have you. So. Um, so thank you for that. Um, I, I I have one more question, and if you you listen to um, our podcast, you you know what it is. So, um, wh- what can well-meaning white people who uh, or or otherwise ally racial allies who want to help change it um, generally? Um, what can they do? What is the best use of their time and money and resources um, from from your perspective? Well, in terms of use of time and how people can show up maybe differently in their lives and in their interactions, having heard this conversation and others, we urge white people, uh, our white allies, especially white lawyers, to resist the notion that they are saviors, to reject saviorism and ownership in general, and to actually acknowledge um, and celebrate and see that the young people we're talking about, the individuals who are locked away in cages, are experts of their own life experiences and ought to be leading these movements and these conversations um, and any cha- any real meaningful change that we're going to see in these systems. So, you know, we've been in conversation publicly and here just in our office talking about this notion of, of what does it look like to reject saviorism, um, to, to engage in some directness and explicit naming of that. And we hope that people will join us in that. Um, and, you know, we wouldn't be co-directors of a five-year-old organization if we didn't say resource-wise. Visit us at ysrp.org. We have a there you go. website. Um, we need people's support to do the work. Um, we are trying to make it happen here in Philadelphia and, like we said, in some of the surrounding counties as well. There is a lot of work to do, and it requires support. So we're grateful for that. And thank you for, for uh, <laughs> creating some space to make that plug. Yeah, no, of course. And I tell uh, April and I tell our listeners all the time, you know, to if you're going to be supporting organizations that are doing this work, you need to make sure that they're, um, you know, not only that their aims are in line with 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 this this sort of um, deconstructing and, and dismantling of white supremacy and, and trying to, to right all these wrongs, but also that they're being headed up by people both people who have been affected by this and just generally by, by black and brown people um, or, or people and or people in close proximity t- to that. And so the, listeners, this is one of those organizations. Please go to uh, YSRP.org and, and, and donate to these folks. This is um, make it a regular thing that you do because this is something that is, is just so important. So um, so this is, this has been uh, Lauren and Joanna of, uh, the Youth Sentencing and Reentry Project. The two of you, I have to thank you so much. We really, uh, really, really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you. Thank you for your questions. Thank you for doing this podcast and for inviting us to share a bit about our stories and our work. It's a privilege. We're honored. Thank you, truly. 
This week's action item deals with indigenous people. Our challenge for you this episode is to do some research and look up the land that you live on, where your house or apartment sits, in your city or town, and look up what group of indigenous people resided on that land before the colonizers arrived and pushed them away from it, either by murder or by disease or by trickery or by, yeah, formalized war. Some sort of theft. Um, and look up the land, look up the group that used to reside where you live and think of ways, and there are creative ways to do this, think of ways to incorporate thanks and appreciation and penance I would say I wouldn't even say thanks and appreciation. Yeah, what because would you say? I would steal and say thank you. Right, penance and yeah. reparations. And reparations. Yeah, that's 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 well said. Um, for that group, um, acknowledgement is a better yeah. way, not thanks, because f- you can't steal something from someone right. and say thank you. Correct. Yeah, right. That's fair. This is mine now. Thanks so much. Right. Like good doing business with you. Right. right. Um, think of ways to acknowledge those folks, and provide to them what has been stolen from them in whatever way you can. This episode of Black Ann was produced by us, April and Jonathan Perkins. It was edited by me, and our music is by Fifth Child. You can find more of his work at fifthchildmusic.com. That's number five, fifthchildmusic.com. You can find Black Ann wherever you listen to podcasts. If you like what you heard today, please feel free to rate, review, and subscribe to the show. Also, be sure to tell your friends. And until next time, be mindful, be vigilant, and, and keep, keep asking, asking questions. questions.